It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 424, November 30th, 2014. This week, if you're a creative, Adobe wants to chase you out of the office, and you'll go willingly. It seems that thieves are making off with supposedly secure data by the gigabyte. In short circuits, Home Depot faces lots of suits but won't be hurt by its data breaches. Symantec says the U.S. and British spy agencies have planted malware worldwide. And Amazon tries yet another discount trick to sell the Fire Phone. Adobe seems to want photographers, designers, and other creatives to get out of the office. And to that end, they've developed a series of free mobile apps for Apple iOS devices only for right now. These things offer considerable functionality by themselves, but they really shine when they're coupled with a Creative Cloud subscription on a desktop machine. And in addition to the apps that are connected to Photoshop, Illustrator, and Premiere, there's also Lightroom Mobile. Lightroom is, in my opinion, the single most comprehensive advance in photography workflow management since the invention of film. Film replaced cumbersome glass plates. Professional photographers say that Lightroom allows them to work faster. Amateur photographers are amazed by the power Lightroom gives them to improve their images. And now Adobe makes much of it mobile. When Adobe loaned me an iPad for a couple of weeks so I could try out the mobile apps, most of them, line, color, mix, brush, draw, clip, shape, and sketch, all of those were already loaded. Not Lightroom Mobile, though. Apple really should work closely with Adobe to highlight the Lightroom Mobile app because it is currently available only for iOS devices, and it's almost enough to make an old Windows diehard like me wish that Santa would bring an iPad this year. Almost. I'm still holding out hope that Adobe will follow through with promises to release these apps for Android devices someday. Someday. Old-time photographers used to say, Someday my prints will come. And that seems to apply to Adobe apps for Android, too. Synchronizing files between desktop and mobile devices is easy enough. But first, you need to create a collection. And a smart collection cannot be synchronized. Only dumb collections, or perhaps more correctly, standard collections. Once you have created a collection, you'll find an icon at the left of the collection name. Click that, and it will sync to your mobile device. You'll see some examples on the TechBiter Worldwide website. In essence, Lightroom Mobile reduces those gigantic raw files that can be 10 megabytes, 20, 30, sometimes even more that your camera took, so they can be stored in the cloud and edited on a handheld device. In one case, I started with a basic picture of a camel from Lightroom and chose to increase the color saturation, reduce the clarity, drop the contrast a bit, and lower the exposure. After making all of the modifications, I saved the image on the iPad, and it was synced right back to the desktop Lightroom application. So Lightroom Mobile is even better when it's combined with Creative Cloud, which no longer involves a $50 per month fee if you need just Lightroom and Photoshop. 
For 10 bucks a month, you'll have access to those capabilities. Amateur photographers who were put off by thoughts of paying $600 a year generally seem to feel that $120 a year is a fair value for the applications they need. To use Lightroom Mobile, you'll need at least version 5.4 of Lightroom for Windows or Mac. The current version is 5.7. Version 5.4 was the first that provided the ability to sync photos via Creative Cloud. The Lightroom mobile app, free from your iTunes App Store, does of course require an Apple account to obtain it, and you have to have iOS 7 or later. The app requires nearly 70 megabytes of storage to be installed, and after installing it, you need to set up the sync process. Clicking a small plus sign in Lightroom Mobile allows the user to create a new collection on the iPad. Once you've done that, you can add photos from iPad's camera roll so they'll be synced back to the desktop. There's also an auto-import feature that will add every new image created on the iPad to Lightroom Mobile and then sync it back to the desktop. One of the most amusing new apps is Mix. Or maybe it's an amazing new app. Well, it's both. It's amazing and amusing. And it's linked to Photoshop. It's an image editor and a compositor that moves surprising power to a handheld device. The compositor function in particular, which allows users to cut out portions of one image and combine that cutout piece with another image. Mix also includes content-aware fill, shake reduction, and lens corrections. These are processor-intensive functions, so they're actually rendered on Adobe servers and then reported back to the iPad. Mix can open complete Photoshop PSD files, or individual layers of a Photoshop file, as well as images from the iPad's camera, photo roll, or other sources. I wasn't able to get it to open a RAW file directly from a camera, though. Those images can be exported from Lightroom in PSD format. The Cutout Photos function acts a lot like Photoshop's Quick Select, except that your finger takes the place of a stylus or a mouse in selecting the parts of the image you want to include or exclude. Selections seem to be considerably more precise in Photoshop, but Mix does an impressive job. Once you've isolated part of the image you want to combine with another image, it's possible to rotate it, scale it, and move it around. I had a photo of a bridge that you may recognize if you've ever visited San Francisco, and I had a picture of a penguin from the Columbus Zoo. What might it look like if I put the penguin in front of the bridge, I thought. Well, after cutting out the penguin and placing it in front of the bridge, I thought some minor color changes would help. That's another capability that's built into Mix. You'll see the images on the TechBiter Worldwide website. As another test, I started with a picture of an office building that's nearby and a photo of a flamingo from the Columbus Zoo. After cutting out the image of the flamingo, I placed it in front of the office building and then uploaded the whole thing to the Creative Cloud. Adobe also offers Photoshop Touch, which costs $10. Mix, on the other hand, is free. Mix offers fewer functions than Touch, but also differs in that the processor-intensive actions don't run on the iPad as they do in Touch. I found myself wondering if the next version of Mix, or maybe the one after that, might replace Touch, and if so, whether it'll continue to be free. The other functions that Mix brings to an iPad are some basic image modification capabilities, adjusting exposure, contrast, saturation, and clarity, and the ability to apply looks to images. Lens corrections, particularly the upright feature, and shake reduction are also handy on the mobile device. Upright corrects images that aren't straight. 
Think of a photo with a horizon line that isn't straight, so it appears that the ocean, in your otherwise outstanding image of a sunset, appears to be flowing downhill. Upright will straighten the image. And if you've created an image that suffers from camera motion blur, shake reduction can help. Key term there, help. If there is unintended camera motion, nothing will make the image perfect. But a judicious application of sharpening and other controls, all automated by shake reduction, can make the image a lot better than it was. Connectivity is probably the most significant problem these apps face, even though they do most of the heavy lifting on distant servers. Using your iPad's data plan for this could prove to be both costly and slow, and Wi-Fi speeds vary greatly. I didn't use Clip, which is linked to Premiere because I'm not exactly a proficient person in video production, and although I'm also not a graphic designer, I can see the promise that's inherent in Sketch, Line, and Draw. Shape is a phenomenal app that creates images that can be imported into Illustrator. Let's say you have an individual you'd like to depict as a line drawing in an article. Well, if you're an artist, you could just create the line drawing manually with a pencil or pen. Or you could use Shape to short-circuit the process. If you're an artist, you can then use the output from Shape as a starting point. But if you're someone like me who can't draw a straight line with a ruler or a curved line with a French curve, Shape can provide exactly what you need. During the process that uses the iPad's camera, either the one in front or back, you can decide how much detail is needed and how large the lines should be. Check it out on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Or maybe you have a building that needs to be represented in an abstract form. Perhaps the owner of the building would like to use an outline or some part of the building as a logo. Again, a real artist could do the job manually or use shape to create a starting point. The bottom line is five cats. If you have an iPad or an iPhone, you should have these apps. I'm sure that some folks are going to complain that you can't do everything with these apps that you can do with a desktop version of the various applications. So what? You can do a lot more with these apps than you can do if you don't have them. They literally make it possible to perform tasks while sitting on a park bench on a sunny day that previously would have required sitting in front of a desktop computer, or in an earlier day, would not have been possible even in a well-equipped darkroom. Science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke once said, Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And even at version 1.0, these apps are good candidates for that accolade. I can't wait to see what Adobe comes up with next. You'll find additional details on the Adobe website. A link, of course, is on the TechBiter Worldwide website. And while you're on the TechBiter Worldwide website, you may notice that I write iPad with a capital I and a lowercase p. Apple writes it the other way around, lowercase i, uppercase p. You may wonder why. Well, the answer has nothing to do with corporate logos and everything to do with plain English. A bit of background might be helpful. Corporate marketing departments develop catchy names and logos for their products and services. Sometimes these involve the use of uncommon capitalization, as in iPad or WordPerfect with the two words run together and a capital P in the middle. Usually, the name is set at a particular typeface, too, when it's used as a logo. Often you'll see TM or the R in a circle symbol. The TM symbol is used to indicate that the company has applied for a trademark. The R in a circle can be used only after the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office has registered the mark. 
Stick with me here. This is kind of an involved explanation. The owner of the trademarked name must use the appropriate symbol, TM or R in a circle, a certain number of times in specific locations. Those who write about a trademarked product or service, me for example, are simply bound to treat the trade name as a proper noun and not to imply ownership of the mark. In other words, I shouldn't imply that I own iPad. Apple owns iPad. That's why you see products and services are mentioned for informational purposes and their various trademarks and service marks are the property of their respective owners on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Now in English, proper nouns, Zambia, John Doe, or Apple, for example, are represented with the first letter of the name in upper case. Someone is certain to think about now of E.E. E. Cummings and claim that he represented his name in lower case. He didn't. But even if he had done so, proper representation in running text would involve capital letters. So iPad with the lowercase i and the uppercase p is just fine when Apple uses it, but in articles written about the device, I feel that the proper usage is either iPad with a capital I and everything else lowercase, or iPad with the IP capital and everything else lowercase. Those enough who are old enough to recall it will remember an early database management system called DBase, lowercase d, uppercase everything else. It was used on personal computers. In articles, I always referred to it as capital D, lowercase base, and never received any pushback from Ashton Tate, the developer. DBase still exists. Ashton Tate was acquired by Borland in 1991 and no longer exists. So Apple can use iPad with the lowercase i and an uppercase p. I can use the uppercase i and lowercase everything else. We're both right for our respective settings. has been some year for data breaches, and it's understandable for people to come away with the feeling that no information is safe anywhere. There's a difference, though, between data breaches that may expose millions of accounts and what crooks can actually do with the information when they have it. We hear that usernames and passwords have been exposed, but often the exposed passwords are actually hashed versions of the passwords. That makes them harder to use. Or sometimes they're hashed and salted versions of the password. That makes them all but impossible to use. Hash and salt. Well, this isn't about what happens to potatoes in a restaurant. Hashing turns a password into a string of characters that can represent the password, but can't easily be worked backwards to find the password. SALT refers to random data that is used as an additional input into a one-way function that hashes passwords or a passphrase. The SALT is an attempt to defend against dictionary attacks. SALTs are randomly generated for each password. The SALT and the password are combined and processed with a cryptographic hash function. The resulting output is stored with the SALT in the database. But... Far too many breaches have involved data that has not been stored securely. Between July and September of this year, there were 320 breaches reported worldwide, an increase of nearly 25% compared to the same period last year, and more than 183 million customer accounts and data records containing personal or financial information were either stolen or lost. 
According to SafeNet, which provides a quarterly review of data breaches, banks and retail stores were responsible for 73% of the stolen records. Financial services, 42%. Retail stores, 31%. These were followed by breaches involving technology and personal online accounts, 20%. These are things like email, gaming, and other cloud-based services. Identity theft also took the top spot among the types of data breaches, accounting for 46% of the total there. Cian Gonan, the chief strategy officer at SafeNet, says that companies should develop comprehensive plans to deal with data breaches so that they will minimize the impact of a breach. Retail stores have been consistently hit hard with breaches. Gonan says that's because criminals want access to credit card and banking information for financial gain or to obtain personal information for identity theft. So far, customers have been tolerant because they feel the problems will be rectified by the bank. But Gonan points out, once your personal photos or private messages have been accessed and leaked online, there's no fixing that. Those items will be forever in cyberspace for your future employers, friends, and family to access. Probably the most concerning aspect of the report is the minimal use of basic encryption procedures for online credentials. While it's not surprising that sophisticated cybercriminals are continuing to attempt these breaches, Gonan said, what is surprising is that only 1% of breached records had been encrypted. Circuits, more than 40 lawsuits have already been filed in the U.S. and Canada as the result of the data breach at Home Depot, a breach that exposed information about 56 million credit cards and debit cards, along with 53 million email addresses. In a regulatory filing this week, Home Depot said it expects additional suits because federal and several state agencies continue to investigate. The company's filing said that the investigations and legal actions will be distractions but they won't have substantial impacts on the business because it has a $100 million insurance policy for breach-related expenses. The policy has a $7.5 million deductible. Fraudsters had access to Home Depot data for several months, at least from April until September, when the company disclosed the break-in. The hackers used a vendor's password to gain access to Home Depot's network and then planted malware throughout the company on Home Depot's point-of-sale terminals. Home Depot has completed security upgrades at U.S. stores, but Canadian stores won't see the enhanced security until sometime next year. Malicious code has been found on research computers, government computers, and business computers, including those used in the telecommunications industry. Security company Symantec says it's been there since 2008, and it was planted not by Chinese hackers, but by U.S. and British government spy agencies. 
Symantec calls it ragged and released a white paper this week describing what it has learned so far. Apparently, the malware is the work of the National Security Agency and its British equivalent, the Government Communications Headquarters. The NSA and the GCHQ have been linked previously. Symantec says it found the malware on computers in 10 countries, most of them in Russia, Pakistan, and Saudi Arabia, but also in places such as Belgium, Austria, and Ireland. Other malware-infected computers are in Mexico, India, and Afghanistan. The report says that it found the malware on computers operated by Belgium's phone company, which is also an Internet service provider. Do you suppose any computers in the United States have this malware on them? The company was blunt in its analysis. In the world of malware threats, it wrote, only a few rare examples can truly be considered groundbreaking and almost peerless. What we have seen in Regan is such a class of malware. The malware doesn't cause damage, at least not intentionally, but it's used for spying. Symantec says it can be set up to capture screen images, collect usernames and passwords, monitor network traffic, and retrieve files that have been deleted. It could also commandeer the computer's keyboard and mouse. Symantec says it's unclear how the victim's computers were attacked. The infection method, researchers say, seems to differ from one system to another. Fake versions of websites have been used as have malware-laced instant messages. Computers used by academic researchers have been infected, as have systems that are used by small and large companies and individuals. Symantec found evidence of ranking on systems used by energy companies, airlines, telecoms, and even hotels and restaurants. Gives you a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling, doesn't it? Fire Phone. Amazon's Fire Phone hasn't exactly been a success. More exactly, it has been a disaster. At full price, it didn't sell. Priced at 99 cents with a two-year AT&T service contract, it didn't sell. Now, Amazon is trying 200 bucks instead of 500 for an unlocked version. Perhaps they should consider hiring people to just carry them away. The GSM-based phone can be used only in the U.S. and only on AT&T and T-Mobile networks. It cannot be used with Verizon or Sprint. And those unfortunate few who bought a Fire Phone with a two-year contract when the phone was first released paid $200 for it, the same price that Amazon is now asking for a phone with no contract. Those early buyers have had their phones for about four months. Amazon spent a lot of money on research and development, which pushed the price up. Consumers, though, seemed to be expecting the Fire Phone to be the smartphone equivalent of a Fire Tablet, a basic model without a lot of frills and a low price. Maybe another name would have been better. Regardless of the price, though, the phone has received only mediocre reviews, and that's being kind. <laughs> Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. 
I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.